Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction, and free shipping, and that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Hello and welcome to another edition of the Curzon Film Podcast. We've got something a bit different for you this week as on the 27th of this month at Curzon Allgate we have a special screening of Sally Potter's film Ginger and Rosa. It's presented by the Bechdel Test Fest and so we spoke to Karina, Beth and Simran of the Bechdel Test Fest team to talk about their organisation and the film. As well as that, today we've also got, in celebration of Federico Fellini's Eight and a Half returning to our screens, we've got Eight and a Half Reasons Why. It's one of the best films ever made. So, sit back and digest as we talk Test Fest with today's blessed guests, Daniela and Harry. Wow. <laughs> Hello. <laughs> I mean, I didn't have any anything else other than rhymes. There's no link there. I mean, we are blessed. So. Yeah. You're a good little rhymer, aren't you? Thank you, mate. Thanks. I appreciate that. Uh, so, yeah, we've got a, a lot to go through today. Um, Ginger and Rose, it's, it's, not a, it's not a new release. This came out in 2012. Uh, but we wanted to highlight the opportunity to go and watch it on the big screen because it is a beautiful film. And you can do that on the 27th of this month, as I said, at Aldgate. So do make sure you check that out, too. Uh, yeah, really, really lovely film. Uh, it's in terms of Sally Potter's oeuvre it's uh, perhaps not as well known as something like Orlando uh, or Yes and so it's an opportunity to watch something that's in a filmmaker's uh, filmography that you may not get the chance to normally. Yeah so Ginger and Rosa uh, is really lovely it's about two girls um, and their friendship um, it's beautifully shot um, I, I was surprised how much I loved it um, I think it was very interesting, and the time it was set as well, and how that played along with the, with their lives. Yeah, so it's set in 1962, and it's uh, kind of more of a character piece on teenage angst and revolution, but it's all held under this big umbrella of the threat of nuclear war, which is kind of held over the entire film as well. Yeah, it kind of it kind of feels a bit dystopian in a way. Yeah, because you watch it and you're like, oh, what's going on? And then suddenly you're like, oh yeah, it's the it's you know it's the Cuban missile. Am I allowed yeah. to say that? Yeah, yeah it's the yeah. Cuban missile crisis. Yeah, but because of the way it's shot and because there's so you actually see so few people other than the the actual actors mm. that it feels like it feels like they're in some sort of 
weird situation where there's a lockdown and stuff like that and it opens with the with this big threat of how many people would die if this mm. bomb goes off yeah and so you're kind of watching it through through their sort of scared eyes yeah and yeah it does make you because it's obviously an era it's 1962 so it's something we would never be able to gauge but it feels like being able to see a a global crisis from such a localized level yep. is really unique um, so on that basis we we need a pitch for this week and so we have a we have a quest a a uh, a long number of films at the moment recently that are just people's names so we have Ginger and Rosa today we have Miss Sloan at the moment we've had John Wick 2 we've had John Wick 1 um, John Wick 1 was a long time yeah. ago for you, to, you, can't just, you can't just say we had John we also had John Carter yeah. let's not forget that I mean, uh, but there is John what? Yeah, there's a, a long tradition of films just being people's names and people say that that's not very uh, original so I would like you to pitch me an original Ginger and Rosa same title, new film. Yeah, um, I'll start. Um, mine is um, two girls, thirteen years old. And so it's just the same film. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you, are you just pitching the film we've just seen? No, wait for it. Oh, okay. It's the Cuban <laughs> Missile <laughs> Crisis. Sorry. Sorry. <laughs> well, it's set in space. In a planet far, far away, but it's not Star Wars, so don't worry. Okay. <laughs> um, uh, yeah, so it's in a planet, and there's two girls, uh, one called Ginger, because um, in her place, they grow ginger. In, okay. in her in, what? In her, like, town, I would say. Yeah. And um, Rose... In space? Yes. Her space town? Yes. Yeah, so we, we've colonised and oh, we've yeah, started I'm growing. I'm just checking. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> and Rosa was called Rosa because she was found with a rose next to her. And they're friends. So they didn't call her Rose, they called her... Rosa. Rosa. Yeah. Wait, they found her. So is it like a Moses kind of thing that she was yeah, found? Yeah, she was found by androids. Whoa, and okay. And she was raised by androids. <laughs> is this <laughs> the, <laughs> the prequel to, the to Prometheus? <laughs> no. <laughs> Struggling to piece the plot. <laughs> anyway, we see them finding a spacecraft... Um, and they're debating what they're going to do with the spacecraft, and then their film is what they're going to do with it. Great, Ginger and Rosa. I like it. Ginger and Rosa in space. Yeah. In Pictured Sally space. Potter. This needs a sequel. <laughs> Harry, is it, is it like the Muppets in space? <laughs> <laughs> I got that sort of feel about it. Um, so I, I've gone for my mine is going to be a documentary based on something that I think is going to happen in a couple of years' time. Okay. So wait, how is it a documentary? <laughs> Because it will, because we're not going to film it now. <laughs> we're going to film it in a couple of years' time. All right, okay. So as in, I'm just waiting for this to play out, okay? Right. So, from the Spice Girls, Ginger Spice. Okay. From TV's Doctor Who, Rose Tyler, a.k.a. Billy Piper. Yeah. And by that point, everyone is going to refer to, everyone's going to forget it's Rose Tyler. And they're going to think, oh, didn't you play Rosa? And that's going to be the running gag throughout the documentary. I mean, some of it's going to be slightly scripted. Okay. So. Sorry, I thought that was the plot. <laughs> no, no, no. No, so. Ginger and Rosa, Billy Piper, ex-Smash Hits winner, Ginger Spice, obviously, successful solo career as well, mm-hmm. want to get their careers back on track, but they don't want to do a big commercial thing. They want to speak to their souls, their hearts. They want to speak to the music inside you. They go on a tour of small seaside town venues in the winter. Ginger and Rosa, Billy Piper, Jerry Halliwell, touring. 
documentary. It's all big now. Amy was big. This yeah. can be big. Done. Okay. Yeah, I, look, I can see that. I can see it in a, in a kind of... Did you see Anvil, the documentary about the heavy metal band that were just so persistent in their touring, even though they played to venues of kind of five people? See, that's what we're looking that's for. It. And it's actually going to be really inspirational, and then the final date is going to yeah. be on the... They've booked the O2, even though everyone tells them not to, but then at the end they sell it out anyway. No, they booked, like, the South End Pavilion or somewhere. Like, it, it, you're thinking too big. Okay. You're thinking <laughs> you've gone way too big. Margate Winter Gardens. Yeah, something like that. That's what we're looking at. <laughs> All right, I like it. I can see that. Yeah, yeah. And, and and it's about them finding the music rather than going for the big pop success. Okay, all right. Um, well, mine is a story also about friendship, um, and it's an animated... In space? Oh, sorry. No, animated film, um, kind of set in the same universe as Sausage Party. Right. And it involves a two two little bottles that are on either end of a spice rack. Where did you get those little bottles from? Well, the, oh, yeah, that, that I'm gesturing with. He's yeah, that's all right, air props, I can't help it. Um, <laughs> so on the one side, we've got ginger, ginger spice, um, uh, like some ground ginger at one end, and then ginger, ginger spice's friend is rose oil, and rose oil is at the other end of the spice rack, um, but they're actually... It's not as crazy as Sausage Party because ultimately they're just victims of terminal illness because as they get used up, they're going to get thrown in the bin. And uh, so it's just... Or they never get used. Yeah. Uh, Well, how often do you use rose oil compared to ginger? Ginger's getting used in the cooking a lot more, isn't it? Mm. Danny, how much do you use ginger in your cooking? No, that much. No, see? I'm like, come on. Everyone, you you use ginger (laughs) a lot more than rose oil. Uh, Fresh ginger, maybe. I mean, rose oil you can use for baking, can't you? Yeah, I mean, you can, but ginger's way more popular. Okay. (laughs) Uh, Text in now whether ginger (laughs) is more more popular than rose oil. It definitely is. (laughs) Anyway, so on that basis, uh, Rose has to just stand in the spice rack and watch as her friend Ginger is used up very gradually, and it's a bit like the bucket list, and they try and get used in the best recipes until they both die. Is this going to be a three-hour film of watching Spice go down? <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's definitely going to be that. Directed by Bella Tarr. <laughs> yeah. I like it. Yeah? It's sad, but I like it. Brilliant, thank you. Yeah. Yeah, I'm gonna. I think my points are gonna go to Ginger Spice and Rose Tyler. Well, I did not see that coming. Yeah. <laughs> I'm voting for Jake. Oh, see, I was gonna vote for Danny. Oh so. no, we can have a third of the points each. Yeah. Actually, well, actually, no. I'm I'm the host here. Yeah, host gets deciding vote. Yeah, uh, I'm gonna go with yeah Ginger Spice yes. and Rose Tyler. Sorry, Danny. Three um, okay. points. So that's uh, that's Ginger and Rosa, Sally Potter's film about. Spice and rose oil. Do catch it in cinemas this week. Yeah, we must get on. Uh, so, uh, if you, we mentioned it earlier that this presentation of Ginger and Rosa at Aldgate is uh, from the Bechdel Test Fest. And if you don't know what that is, uh, as I said, we spoke to uh, Karina, Beth, and Simran from the Bechdel Test Fest to tell us a bit more about themselves and the film. So we are delighted to welcome Karina, Simran and Beth from the Bechtel Test Fest onto the Curzon Film Podcast this week. 
Would you like to introduce yourself? Uh, hi, I'm Simran Hans. I produce and programme the Bechdel Test Fest. Uh, hi, I'm Beth Webb. I also produce events for the Bechdel Test Fest, a previously volunteer and uh, recently graduated to events producer. Hi, I'm Karina and I'm the founder of the Bechdel Test Fest. Excellent. So, the Bechdel Test Fest comes from the originated with The Rule, um, which I imagine a lot of listeners may be familiar with. A lot of listeners just coming to the show may have no idea what on earth we're talking about and what the Bechdel Test Fest, nor the Bechdel Test even means. Um, would one of you care to shed some light on that? Um, yeah, so the Bechdel Test is a very low bar measure that's applied to any film that signals if it has two women in it that have a conversation with each other about something other than a man. Um, it's a very low bar measure that approximately 50% of the films actually fail. And um, what we wanted to do is chunk in the films that do pass with fly- flying colours. Excellent. And what was the origin of the test itself? So this came from a comic? Yes. Um, so Alison Bechtel is a cartoonist. And now 33 years ago, I think, um, she created a cartoon of two women um, going on a date and talking about where they're going to go and they one says to the other let's go to the cinema and the other one says to the other oh the thing is I don't go to the cinema unless the film I have this rule and I apply it to all the films that I watch and the three step rule was applied and then they discussed that actually that means that they couldn't go and see anything at the cinema so it kind of struck a chord and it was very tongue in cheek but from that it uh, yeah it struck a chord in people and they thought hey hang on a minute, There's, those are films that actually don't pass that three-tick system, um, and thus the Bechtel test was born. And it's not really uh, a question of whether it makes a film good or not, or Absolutely the quality not. of it. It's not even a, a measure of whether it makes a film feminist or not. It is just a, a good starting point for a conversation mm. about um, women in film and, and sort of representation on screen in, in a very kind of like uh, basic, literal way. And how did the idea for the festival came about? Like, what, how did you guys came together to make this festival a thing? So I was doing film marketing and film journalism and I was getting quite fatigued with the amount of uh, male-led stories that I was being sold and, and watching and having to write about. Um, and then after a redundancy spell, I decided, because of my love of film festivals, that I'd love to start a film festival. Um, I didn't have any experience, so I thought, well, if I'm not going to get a job in one, I'll make one. Um, so then the Bechtel Test Fest idea was born, and then I was like, well, obviously not going to be able to do this on my own. Um, and then just through networking and uh, social media and just hanging out with cool people like these fun ladies, um, who had the same kind of ambitions and the same ideas on feminism and film, um, a group of us decided to uh, go forth and screen films that had better representation for women in cinema. So I suppose that was there some kind of chicken and egg situation of the thinking about it and wanting to run it and the test, the test was on like the 30th anniversary yes, of that existing that's right. as well. that's right. So I was, um, I spent a lot of time volunteering at film festivals and to gain experience um, and then um, then you had the idea. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I really knew that I wanted to make a film festival, so I spent a lot of time volunteering at film festivals uh, to gain experience and to make contacts. And um, when I came up with the idea of the Bechtel Test Fest, it was when I was writing a piece about the good things happening for women in film that particular month. 
And that particular month, I came across the A-rate, which is a classification system that's used in Sweden to signal if a film passes the Bechtel test or not. I was inspired by this. I actually went over to meet um, the founder of the A-rate, and she happened to say within our interview, oh, did you know the Bechtel test is 30 years old next year? So I thought, well, that's a good hook to have a mm. year-long festival, because I thought if you're going to have a celebration of women in film, it shouldn't just be this concentrated effort over a weekend or a week it's it's an ongoing conversation that needs to be had as it adapts to the cinema landscape um, so I decided to do a year-long festival but then our first couple of events just really took off we sold out um, really quickly and it really identified a, a hunger and a need for those good films that have adequate representation and um, it also lent itself to so many opportunities programming wise and you know documentaries and uh, short films and we really wanted to explore as many options as we could within the realms of positive representation for women in film. I think it's also important to note that I guess what we do maybe a bit differently than a lot of other film festivals is that we always have a conversation attached to the screening so we're not just presenting films and kind of letting our taste be um, the context by itself we're always looking to think about what these films are saying what we can say about them and kind of get the audience involved in that direct um, way so mm. I think yeah that's that's kind of uh, also something that we do something that we've honed over the three years that we've been doing it yeah absolutely we really look at the audiences and see who's there uh, why aren't they there if they're not there and how do we get them there um, and because the Bechtel test essentially is about conversation about well conversation full stop we always try to implement a conversational element within our screenings so that we can enjoy film, talk about film and then discuss what needs to change or just discuss how awesome it is. Yeah, yeah. all of our post-screening conversations pass the Bechdel test. So. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, with the idea of the festival, people might have, have it in their head an idea of what the films might be. It's like very I don't know, like politically aimed or intense films. But then there's Thelma and Louise on there. It's, like, it's not all serious all the time. It's definitely not. We had the, the first event that I programmed um, was last year at the London Comedy Film Festival. And um, the girls... So I used to volunteer and then just came to the girls with this idea of showing uh, Drop Dead Gorgeous, which was this 1999 kind of teen comedy that kind of got buried under like the Cluelesses and the other slightly more high-profile teen films of the time. and. It's just this great satire written by a woman um, that completely flopped at the box office that had this incredible cult following and um, yeah we got to play it and have this big discussion about women in comedy off the back of it so it doesn't have to be serious or you know it can span all genres like you've got Thelma and Louise in there um, you know you've got period dramas you've got foreign film it's yeah it's a great scope that we're, we're working with now. And sometimes one of the things that we like to do is rescue films that, that kind of get forgotten or get hidden and um, that's something that we did with a film called Beyond the Lights a couple of years ago now, um, which is directed by Gina prince Byford. It has a pretty much all-black cast. She's an African-American director and um, the film was meant to get a home ends release only and we uh, decided that we weren't going to have that. So, <laughs> um, so yeah, we, we screened it at the Ritzy um, and then we ended up doing a couple of subsequent screenings and then the BFI took it on tour as part of their love season. Um, I think because of the renewed interest that, uh, that we kind of drummed up. So we're, we're kind of always looking for 
interesting things and, and things that have a story as well. That was, I remember going to that and that was just heaving. Yeah. You couldn't sit next to people you came with because <laughs> it was just sold out. It was amazing to, to yeah. go and watch that happen. The atmosphere on that particular event was amazing and it really did make us want to carry on and do more things like that. And like Simran says, rescue films. Um, because we have an audience, we know our audience, we know how to market to them, and they like coming to our events. So, yeah, as long as the films are being made, we'll screen them. And now the star of Beyond the Lights, Giga and Bartha Roy, is going to be in bloody Star Wars, so. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, that leads nicely on to your, your next event uh, on the 27th at Curzon Orchid. That's right, we're really excited. We're screening um, Little Soldier, which is Stella Karadi's award winning short film, um, which we decided was worthy to give Stella the Best Female Director Award at the London Short Film Festival this year. Um, both Simran and I got the opportunity to judge the incredible level of um, amazing films by female directors this year, um, but Stella's work really shone out. And um, so part of the prize of that was to screen her work. Um, so Stella's a really interesting director. She's from my hometown of Hackney. Um, and she's also worked very closely with Sally Potter um, and uh, they, they've got a really interesting mentor, inspirational type relationship which when talking to Stella it's really fascinating and I think a lot of people will take a lot of inspiration with that relationship in terms of creative process and just women getting stuff done, mm-hmm. you know. Um, so we're screening Little Soldier, um, which stars Zoe Ashton, um, and alongside um, Ginger and Rosa, which Stella also worked on. She was her assistant director. Yeah. I think it's um, it's tricky with short films because often they get buried in a shorts, a shorts programme, and so you know things kind of might not always stand out, or people feel like they're, they're more like web content sometimes. Um, so we really wanted to put it in dialogue with a feature, and given that Stella Crady worked on both the films, and also um, the cinematographer Robbie Ryan, who um, has shot a lot of Andrew Arnold's films as well, um, he shot both films too, so there's that visual link mm-hmm. between them, and I think what would be really nice is for people who maybe haven't seen Ginger and Rosa in a while, or haven't seen it at all, to kind of be able to watch it next to Stella's film, and uh, watch Stella's film first because then they'll kind of see, you know, what it looks like. They'll see her aesthetic as a director, and then they'll kind of see the links between the two, hopefully, um, which I think will be really special. Absolutely, because that's from talking to Stella about her win and her work, um, and programming an event around her her her, um, her her work. She talked to us about how she'd taken inspiration from Ginger and Rosa and how there are certain elements that she'd applied in Little Soldier and when you see them back to back you can really see that element and that accent that she'd uh, taken inspiration from uh, from Ginger and Rosa so so yeah they're really they're really nice companion pieces mm. definitely and then with Little Soldier we'll see uh, Suzanne Ash is going to be at the event which we're really really excited about um so she stars in the film with this amazing little girl um, with this big curly hair and then Zoe Ashton plays her mum and it's really something that I've not seen Zoe Ashton do before so it's nice to see that and then to have her on stage with Stella in conversation with each other so um, again it's in theme of like opening up the conversation as opposed to just a straightforward Q&A we're going to have 
a chat about their inspirations and what it's like to collaborate with other women as well. And I think people might know Zoe Ashton from uh, Fresh Meat, where she plays Bod. Um, it's the, the sort of E4 comedy show that's set at a university, yeah. set at my old university, um, <laughs> University of Manchester. I didn't know that. And those grotty houses are really what they looked like. She's um, also in Nocturnal Animals, which is... Yeah, she's yeah. a cameo in Nocturnal yeah. Animals. Yeah. I, I was like, oh, Zoe. But yeah, no, I'm really excited. But yeah, she's... she's, she's um, yeah, she's a, uh, doing something quite different in this role. It's much grittier. Mm. Um, and yeah, it's, it's a really special um, performance. Mm, yeah, definitely. Yeah. As um, you mentioned a second ago about bringing back films that people may not have seen or forgotten about, and even in um, Sally Potter's filmography, Ginger and Rosa is not... You'll think of Orlando or even Rage or Yes in there. Um, so I thought it, even without the Robbie Ryan connection or the, the, the director connection. It's just nice to bring that film rather than the ones that people might think of. Absolutely, and it's a real Bechtel test passing film. It's two girls and it's very coming of age and I think in this political climate now of activism, I think it's a really good time to watch it again. And this, I think I really connect with the female friendship of growing up together and how that can evolve as you get older and as you're as you, one may progress quicker than the other in terms of love life or uh, circumstance and it's, it's very touching and um, yeah, I'm, re- I'm really looking forward to seeing it on the big screen for I the first time, I've only seen it again on the... On I screen. think as well, um, people who may sort of have forgotten that this is one of Elle Fanning's early films, like her mm. performance in this film is incredible and uh, I think it's maybe only her first or second film that she'd done, I, th- I think actually somewhere the Sofia Coppola film mm. is 2011 but since she was in The Neon Demon, she's going to be in Sofia Coppola's new film, The Beguiled, which is coming out, I think, next month. Um, so it'll be really interesting context to kind of see her with all this great dyed red hair um, and give this really vulnerable, really aching performance um, when she was just a baby. <laughs> now she's all grown up or getting there. And Christina Hendricks, who I yeah. adore... Um, isn't it? It's a, yeah. it's a British film, but they have, I mean, they have now some good American stars in there as well. Mm. So yeah, they all do pretty good accents. No one's accents that ropey, I don't think. Thank God. <laughs> I can't, can't stand about it. Yeah. Um, but yeah, not be amazing. I thought, weirdly, when I was watching it, because I, I didn't want to read too much on it before I saw it, and mm. it, it feels like Robbie Ryan shooting it instantly, um, before I'd even looked that up as well. And why a weird thing that I picked up on it is the because of Ginger's hair in it, it's and the way that it's shot, it's felt it's got that color palette of teal and orange, mm. which is so blockbuster. Mm. And the fact that the film is so small and intimate like that just felt lovely to watch all the time because you're so used to those colors being a completely different film. Yeah, it's, it's like, um, I mean, we're moving away from Bechtel a little yeah. bit, but it's a bit like Slow West, which is one of those really, just one of the most beautiful films I think I've ever seen. And he just applies it so well to small spaces and to things that would normally be quite mundane. It's kind of like great. It's so good. Yeah, Robbie Ryan's use of colour is, uh, is definitely seen in Little Soldier, and there's one particular dreamlike sequence which is just stunning. And yeah. I kind of don't want to give it away because mm. it is. It really takes you. It really, it really throws you when you watch it, and it's quite. You're not expecting it, and it's just gorgeous. Yeah. What's really exciting about that is that the shorts so much these days live online as well. So being able to see a short on the big screen is such a great opportunity that people re- rarely get. 
Absolutely. Yeah. And, and the last opportunity, really, to sort of see this particular film on a big screen because it's done its festival circuit tour. And I guess most people who would have seen it will be people who work in the film industry. Um, and this is a really great opportunity for people who are just interested in movies to see it um, as its last kind of big screen outing. Yeah. Well, for the time being, I guess. Which is why we're going to have a little party afterwards. Yeah. <laughs> um, when you're thinking of these uh, films to curate, obviously you have the rule. But beyond that, what else do you think? Because there, there are films like... It can't have two people behind it and not the other. So it's got to be something that we all agree on. Something that's a little bit different. Something that perhaps pushes boundaries or pushes genres that haven't before. Again, something that's been buried that... Um, that people perhaps haven't had a chance to see. Like the last one I programmed was uh, All This Panic um, with Jenny Gage, and we had the most, oh, just the most lovely QA afterwards with her and one of the girls from the film. So, with that one, I just so desperately wanted people to see it. Mm. Um, I caught it at London Film Festival and wasn't aware of it being shown anywhere anytime soon. So, again, just that idea of getting sort of untold stories out there is a big part of it. Yeah, I think a lot of it is our tastes as well, yeah. um, which I guess that's something that you have to get people to trust you on. You have to um, kind of get people to get behind your, yeah, your taste. I don't know what, if there's a better word for it. Um, but hopefully people who have been to our events before will kind of know um, what they might be in for and people who haven't will get a good idea of, of what we're about. Yeah. yeah. It's films that essentially speak to all of us um, in some way or form and for instance, with Beyond the Lights, it was, for me, just to see a mixed-race person in a lead role was great, and 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 that's what was so sad about it, not getting the outing that it should have got. Um, so, yeah, that, 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 was, that was an important one for me. Um, but, yeah, just like, like they all said, there's films that speak to us all, that are good, that prove that you don't have to have um, an all-male cast film directed by a man in order for it to be good and you know we're proving that we can bring audiences to feminist films because uh, I was thinking about this this film is a representation of young female friendship mm. and uh, or Ginger and Rosa that is and it got me thinking about films that I think of as the young young male friendship films and that I felt kind of captured some elements of my youth and for me that is Wayne's World you can put up a rifle, a rifle, and programming outfit to show when you But that's Penelope's furious, and that's that's yeah, yeah. And I think people get maybe get caught up on this idea that female directors will have to direct female films and male directors have to direct male films like we talked about Delma and Louise already yeah. and Penelope Spheris directed Wayne's World Absolutely. and it's just yeah, so yeah, captures exactly. that relationship perfectly we, we actually yeah. screened um, last year we screened American Psycho which mm. is directed by Mary Harron I mean it barely passes the test yeah. so we did have to kind of bend <laughs> yeah. the rules for that screening yeah. but um, every year we like to do an event that centres around masculinity as well because we think that's an important part of feminism Absolutely. oh the magic mm. mic there was a magic I wasn't Events producer them, but just going to watch the Magic Mike double bill at Prince Charles was, I think, the most glorious special. cinematic experience mm. I've ever had. That was pretty special. Like, you could tell he was screaming on the screen and he was screaming <laughs> the audience. It was fantastic. Yeah. It was so good. That was certainly a highlight. Um, but yeah, ultimately, we're, we're championing positive representation for people that are so often marginalised on the big screen. Brilliant. 
Um, well, that's on the 27th. 27th. Yes, that's day the 27th that occurs on Aldgate in yeah. the afternoon. Yeah. So come watch the film and then have a drink with us afterwards. And, um, yeah, we've got see, a DJ, we've got some drinks. And really fun. We're also selling some cool things, so you might want to come and check those out. Yeah, we've got some zines, some t shirts. Should be good. Some tote bags. Got it all going on. Brilliant. Uh, Karina, Simran, and Beth, thank you so much for thank coming you. on. Thank you. Thank you. There we are. Uh, so that was me and Danny uh, with Karina, Beth, and Simran, and that was that was a really great chat to learn a bit more about this organisation for pe- listeners that don't know anything about it. Uh, it's such a great idea and a way of showing not necessarily just niche films, mm. but viewing big films as we mentioned in the interview, like Thelma and Louise, in a different light as is well. It, isn't it funny how it's the Bechtel test is one of those things that if you just haven't heard about it, you just won't have heard about it. But if you've heard about it. You, you often just end up talking to people about mm. it. You often end up just sitting down and saying like, and debating it and, and coming up with the ideas about it. And I only heard about it um, a few months ago, and it's amazing how now watching films, I just look out for it more. Like yeah. I think just from hearing about it and knowing about it. So yeah, if more people can know about it, then great. Yeah, and it's and then it also makes you think how silly it is when it's not done. Yeah, because yeah. it's not it's not like it's telling you you need to have really long scenes it's effectively saying that there can just be one line of dialogue that is a sentence between two women that isn't about a man and then it will pass yeah. and it just and you think that, that is seconds of effort and it just shows how and so many films don't yeah, pass yeah <laughs> how little thought is put into it it's amazing uh, and so this festival just continuing and showing films that are passing this test that might not be groundbreaking in the way that we might view, I don't know, uh, like some art like art house triumph, mm-hmm. but that it, we can show blockbusters that do pass the test and do show representations of women in a good light, um, and it's not a hard thing to do. Yeah, <clears throat> it's, it's that, yeah, like you said, it's nice that they have the variety of films from small, like, as they said, they mentioned about, like, niche films that probably they brought out. Yeah, I mean, like, you've got Kenneth Lonergan, who we know is the director of Manchester by the Sea, mm. and his previous film, Margaret, that got really stuck in kind of post-production hell of different cuts and losses of funding, and no one ever really got the chance to see it. And earlier this year, they brought that back into their event and showed that. And that's such a wonderful opportunity for cinema goers to go and watch something that they would never have had the opportunity to see. But to view it in the context of the festival as well only makes that experience even better. And like last year, there was a United Kingdom as well, which we're big fans of, Thelma and Louise, as we mentioned. There's a lot there and a lot of variety. Yeah, I really like the fact that the festival itself is not like a weekend. It's like throughout the year, so it gives you the opportunity to see things throughout the year if you keep an eye on it. Mm. I thought that was really good. So uh, let's move on to Ginger and Rosa. Uh, and I think it's it's no coincidence that this film has been selected at this time. And they've it's a very acute move by the programmers at Bechdel Test Fest to put this film on now um, because it is about... Uh, unity and friendship and youth activism, <laughs> which yeah. I think is really important. Yeah, well, there's, there's such, it's such a, it feels like such a hotbed now for what's going on in the world and that kind of, there feels like there's 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 a potential for a threat or or like at least there's sort of murmurs of that. So that 
whoever's doing the programme is doing an absolutely stunning job of picking this film because it feels so relevant and so important. And even though it's you know it's set in the sixties, and even though you know it came out a few years ago, its relevance still you know still watching it yesterday still feels so crucial. Yeah, it feels like encouraging for like young people to be active, to go and vote. Yeah, well, like yeah, there's a, there's a big thing at the moment about trying to get young people out to vote and how how that sort of you know being wasted and how you can't affect policy change particularly in the UK where, where we've got a general election coming up mm. how you can't affect policy change unless you're out voting and policies being targeted at older people because they tend to vote this gets to the heart of it but I think does a lot more than just that yeah um, so let's let's introduce it. we've got so we've got ginger and Rosa who uh, are introduced as they're being born and then we show them kind of a brief moment of them growing up together sitting on the the swings and then we meet them properly at, at uh, their teenage years and that's where the film kind of sits itself and we they're best friends and that they're, they're so far lifelong best friends and this is a pivotal moment in their lives and this is where you begin to engage with the outside world beyond your kind of inner circles and engage politically but also engage socially and there is that the movement of one of the characters towards uh, men which neither has really encountered at this point and one perhaps exploring further than the other and the divides that that can create and how friendships become rethought yeah it's the point Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, how to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, how to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today that we're showing the characters is when like teenagers start to change they start to develop they start to change from what they used to be and the friendships change as well you um, sound like a s- sex ed class <laughs> <laughs> your body's going to change <laughs> the point that we meet them is when they're like they, ch- they take different directions and that's kind of normal um, and it, what it means to each of them um, and how they deal with it because obviously they make they make sort of big choices in terms of you know sex and in terms of relationships and and going forward and what they want to do but i love i love the sort of the small choices that are made throughout this film mm. like at one point she announced she decides that she wants to be a poet mm. and that's is, that's is such a teenage thing to yeah. do yeah. <laughs> that is so, like i'm sure we you've either been that person or you've or you've hung out with people like that where they just and 
and some obviously some people go on and, and become poets and, and do it but a lot of it seems like a wave of like oh I want to do something different I'm going to be an artist <laughs> I'm going to be a poet I just like and I think that sort of embodies that whole kind of that big sweeping change that you, that you get with mm. with the teenage years that you know oh I want to be a poet and I want to do something different and and it's that it's that sudden realization that you can choose what you want to do in a certain respect, but it's still shackled by like home and school and things like that. Yeah. So it's that it's that it's that beautiful sort of measuring of those those two sides. Yeah, and like as adults, we can we can look at it a bit more objectively and look at the kind of futility and silliness and confidence uh, of it. And but the film isn't taking the mick out of it. No, it's, no, no, it's no. very lovingly made to celebrate that uh, that confidence of the teenage years to of having complete self-belief in an idea and it like within six months that could fade away um, and there's a chance it won't as you say um, but it's it's that admiration of belief that they have and that that filters from work and art into politics as well mm-hmm. and I think the film's trying to translate for us to kind of regain some of that spirit yeah, I think I I really admire admired her for like wanting to be a poet, to want to get involved with politics and be so passionate about it. Um and it's just it, it made her character just so interesting to look at throughout yeah. the whole entire thing. Also, yeah. it's so it's it's a it's a really interesting and bold choice to have this have her with her bright ginger hair mm. because the film is actually quite drab. The, like it looks, it looks quite dark. Everyone's in quite plain clothes. There's not, there's not sort of bright colours or anything like that. So to have her, because her personality stands out, but then her hair stands out as mm. well. And G- Ginger in particular, it's so like on screen. You can just wherever she is, obviously she's the main character, so you sort of see her the most. But you, you're sort of drawn to her anyway. Mm-hmm. And I think, I think um, Elle Fanning, who who plays her. I think does that with her with with the way she acts as well. So there's a bit very early on where they're where they're um I think they're smoking cigarettes and they're laughing and she and she almost sounds slightly crazed mm-hmm. by the way she laughs. But that totally goes with her look and her personality and the way and and how she's choosing choosing these different life things. Uh yeah, and the the fact that you've brought up just this bit of them smoking for me, that's where this film is at its best, in those little moments of life that are more casual. There is this plot that goes on in... I don't want to say in the background, because it is key to understanding the characters, um, but it's not, for me, where the film shines. And that plot is that there is a kind of breakup in Ginger's family, and she's trying to figure out where she, whether she wants to be staying with her mum, with her dad, uh, and then her friend Rosa starts a relationship with another man spending more time with him their friendship's starting to disintegrate she looks for advice from family friends that's where we meet Timothy Spool and Annette Benning as well and, and Oliver Platt and Oliver Platt of course sorry <laughs> and so she's trying to navigate through these kind of tectonic shifts as well and I think for me because those, those feel so big on a personal level and then we also have the the threat of nuclear annihilation going on as well, which we're constantly reminded of. For me, seeing those little moments where she is laughing or smoking, those little character beats, I love those because they 
that's so small and the, the rest of it feels so enormous on purpose as well. well I, I think they do that. They also do that with sound. The film is incredibly quiet and throughout it, there's not a huge amount of sound. The only thing is that there's a really great soundtrack. Mm. The soundtrack's yeah. amazing. It's got a really good jazz soundtrack. There's some... Uh, there's a great version of Take 5 on there which is, which is really early on which is really nice so soundtrack's really good but it's it's so quiet that when there is any sort of shouting or any sort of loud sound there's a there's a wonderful bit where it goes really quiet and I think they've just been on I think they've just been on the boat it goes really quiet and then suddenly you're clicked into the scene where uh where Ginger is at her school and there's just a loud bang because she's done an mm. experiment. Mm. And and that sort of goes along with the narrative. It's so quiet and these there's so many what are seen as small personal issues that when a big sort of event happens or, or you think a big event might be happening, then it does feel like that loud bang and I think that really goes, yeah. goes nicely with the pace of the whole film. Yeah, and I think uh, that clashing of sound... Uh, combined with the the way that the visuals work as well, because you have those I- moments of isolation on the boat, for instance, where mm. it is completely empty and yes. it's blue and it's just this wash of singular colour. So that when we do see then we cut to daytime, Ginger's hair, bright sunlight, and that contrast, it just it breaks it up into a collection of brilliant little scenes and moments rather than feeling like we need to have this constant thread of narrative throughout. Yeah. Um, um, also, I, f- I found really interesting how we were talking about before um, with Ginger being into poem, poems and everything, um, how the characters are being presented to us um, and how at first it feels like, oh, like they seem a bit um, weird and like pretentious and all that. Um, but then later on we realise that that's kind of meant to be like that um, and um, it's it, it's interesting to see like the development of each of them like not just Ginger and Rosa but her family as well throughout the plot and obviously at the final act This so has a, that, we, we probably should I, I know we touched upon it but it's probably a good time to go through the sort of the supporting cast because mm. it is so mm. strong yeah and, uh, and it is about these two girls, but the supporting cast of the well, like we sort of mentioned it, uh, Net Benning, who's in 20th Century Women with Elle Fanning, which came out, which which I absolutely love, uh, which is great. Oliver Platt, uh, Timothy Spall, Christina Hendricks. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So the, the the supporting cast is so strong in this that actually that I think that pretension is there, but goes away quite quickly because you're. Because the acting's so good yeah. that they they are so assured of who their characters are yeah. and and what they're doing and and where they're from and every character feels like I think Oliver Platt who I absolutely love mainly from The West Wing but I think he he only has maybe like ten lines in this film and yet it feels like and it's slightly touched upon but not that much it feels like he has a really detailed backstory and that's what every character feels yeah. like they really know where their character's been and why they're why they're where they are now and and that really relates to a the girl's relationship but also this sort of big world event that's going on and i i think it really gets that you know going from sort of the second world war into the 60s and that that kind of threat but also 
what happened in the war and there's there's definitely that sort of coming together of, of two a two different ages yeah. to sort of yeah and I it's mean, not it's not that swinging 60s kind of thing it's that actually it's that more reality of what's going on yeah. it's early 60s I, well i think ginger's caught between two worlds with her parents because um her mother uh i would would like to think that she is was a, is an artist and a free spirit and all these things but she was so um torn apart by the war that it was structure and routine that kind of kept her life going particularly with having to raise a young daughter and so she's had to sacrifice that and that structured motherhood has become her life whereas her father uh, or Ginger's father uh, Christina Hendricks character's husband has maintained that loose identity he was a pacifist and he was put in jail and he's managed to keep that more hippieish spirit and so Ginger has got has lived this life torn between someone that has maintained that identity and someone that has sacrificed it and she's having to find her way between the two yeah and she seems to be like going towards her dad's side quite a lot and seeing her with her dad and how she admires him and all his like like his actions and the way he speaks and what he talks about and when other people talk about her father um which is always in like a good light she admires that whereas it's not the same with her mom and it's quite nice to see how that develops throughout the film yeah there's when you get into the third act about the how the lives of the parents when they separate what form they take mm. becomes really interesting uh, particularly the one that culminates back in the in the mother's house, which is uh, the penultimate scene of the whole film, is maybe the best scene in the film. It's yeah. quite remarkable, yeah. um, which is a real treat. So Ginger and Rosa, there, do check that out. Uh, it's at Curzon Aldgate on the twenty seventh. Uh, make sure you do see it. Uh, it's shot by Robbie Ryan, who did American Honey last year. Who's a wonderful cinematographer so I get, loved American yeah, yeah me too <laughs> <laughs> so uh, his films or the films that he shoots look beautiful and so getting to see this on a big screen uh, you won't regret it but we now have uh, Irena Musumeci from our head office who's been on this show a number of times um, and she's given us a rundown of why Eight and a Half Federico Fellini's film uh, is one of the best films ever made. Not just one reason, eight and a half reasons. Uh, and we've got this because it's back on cinema screens this Sunday as part of the Seven Wonders of World Cinema season. Uh, and you can find more about that on the events section of the Curzon website. Uh, it's also in the Curzon Home Cinema collection of Best Foreign Language Oscar winners. Uh, eight and a half is in there. So if you have never seen Eight and a Half, the lecture that Irene is about to give you will thoroughly convince you, but do go and check that out too. Uh, she did ask me to mention that, as a little correction, that the first Oscar for Best Foreign Language was La Strada in 1957. Uh, that's why we've got seven films in 70 years, uh, and it's incidentally being re-released in cinemas this week and playing uh, a few selected shows at Curzon Cinemas too. And so to talk about Fellini's Eight and a Half is Irene Musumeci. Hello. Uh, Ciao. Make, <laughs> making a glorious return after a phenomenal interview with Isabella Lopez from last year. <laughs> One of the most awkward moments of my life, I believe. <laughs> 
she I, was I, totally mesmerizing. We were talking about things to come, though. Right. So we asked her a lot of questions about philosophy, which did give her an opportunity to talk philosophically about philosophy for a long time, and she was great. And so you're here to uh, tell us a bit more about the Seven Wonders seasons at Curzon that's going to be going on, as well as giving us eight and a half reasons why we should be watching eight and a half. Absolutely. So the Seven Wonders uh, is, called, is the Seven Wonders of World Cinema season, and it's a season that we bring into cinemas in conjunction with AMPAS. Now, AMPAS is the Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Science, also known as the Academy, also known as the Academy, <laughs> as in the Oscars, the guys who give out the Academy Awards. Um, we've teamed up with Ampass to uh, celebrate 60 years of the Oscar for Best Foreign Language Film, uh, which was uh, first won by Fellini's La Strada in 1967, and said 60 years, uh, and uh, subsequently uh, then went on to be a staple of the Oscars um, awards every year. So we'll be bringing seven uh, winners across seven Sundays from different countries. Uh, Italy is currently the front runner in the Oscar <laughs> leaderboard, hence why I'm on this podcast. We've won the Oscar 11 times out of 28 nominations, which is actually phenomenal, particularly thinking about where Italian cinema is today, which may not be the best place. Um, but the, the season does showcase two great Italian films. La Strada was last week. Eight and a Half is coming up this Sunday at Cousin Bloomsbury. And then there's a, there's a Tin Drum from Germany, Babette's Feast from Denmark, All About My Mother, directed by the great Pedro Almodova uh, from Spain, obviously, The Secret in the Rise from Argentina, and finally this year's winner, The Salesman, directed by Oscar Ferradi. Um, the winners have been selected to represent each decade of the Oscar for Best Foreign Language film, and uh, to give a sort of nice idea of what world cinema is up to and what kind of world cinema gets the recognition in this particular category. Uh, we had somebody from Ampas uh, talking about the criteria for choosing the best foreign language nominations every year. And they're quite strict, they're very much about language rather than the country of production. Uh, and so there was quite an interesting insight. Uh, Obviously, with World Cinema being such a staple of what we do at Curzon mm. and really being massive fans of particularly European cinema, we're really branching out into world cinema. This is a season that we are hoping will resonate with people. Yeah. There I'm, is also... Oh, sorry. sorry. No, I was going to say, um, and with regard to the Academy Award for Foreign Language Film, Artificial Eyes on a streak of how many years now? Uh, but yes, Artificial Eyes on a great streak, uh, essentially distributing in the UK the best foreign language winners. Uh, for the past six years, I believe. Um, there is a fantastic collection of recent Best Foreign Language Oscar winners on Curzon Home Cinema, and uh, Eight and a Half is also part of that collection, so if you're not anywhere near Curzon Bloomsbury this Sunday, when we'll be screening Eight and a Half at Curzon Bloomsbury, um, please do check it out on Curzon Home Cinema, because it's the greatest film ever made. Okay, and what are, give us the reasons, give us the eight and a half reasons why this is the greatest film ever made. So, um, in true keeping with eight and a half and Fellini uh, as a filmmaker, before I get to the eight reasons, there has to be a little bit of a preamble. Uh, why is this film called eight and a half, I think is a question that anybody looking at this title will be wondering. And essentially, uh, the film is called eight and a half because it's loosely speaking Fellini's eight and a half film. Um, it's a film that is very much about a crisis of creativity. Uh, Fellini was about to start directing this film that eventually became Eight and a Half, 
and he realized he had a major, major, major case of director's block. He didn't know what this film was going to be about. He had one idea, then he had 75, then he had to bring them down to about 20. Then he, he sort of decided that he would never make films again, scrap them entirely, uh, had a huge sort of level of anxiety. And this all happened because he just won the Oscar with La Dolce Vita. Uh, obviously, he'd made quite a lot of films that were very, very successful in Italy, most of them comedies. La Dolce Vita was a bit of a departure from all that. And so the expectation was really high for him on the international stage. The other problem was that he, uh, he had found Marcello Mastroianni and Marcello Mastroianni is the most handsome man that ever lived and he just sort of oozes charisma and everybody who has ever met him absolutely fell in love with him. And so there was no way Fellini was going to hire another actor, except the idea that Fellini had started with was that Eight and a Half, or the film that became Eight and a Half, was going to be a film about a writer who had a crisis. And uh, Mastroianni had just finished making La Ventura with Antonioni which is about a writer who has a crisis. So there you go, Fellini has his idea stolen and he thinks, oh God, I can't make this film at all. But then eventually one day he wakes up from a terrible nightmare and he thinks, I know, I'm gonna make this film about a director who can't make a film. And so he did. And uh, I think it's an absolutely seminal film. It's a film that's inspired filmmakers across at least three generations right now. It really became something that even Fellini's contemporaries started referring to, but then also it's gone on to inspire Todd Haynes, Paolo Sorrentino, Julie Taymor, I mean major, major filmmakers in various different ways. It's also an incredibly postmodern film, it's a pastiche film, it's very self-referential, it sort of invites the idea of a remake, the quotation, the kind of nod to, uh, to the homage, the parody, and at this point, we will not talk about the musical that is known as Nine, because as far as I'm concerned, it should not exist. So having said all this, um, eight reasons why I think Eight and a Half is the greatest film ever made. Um, so number one is that it's one of those films that really combines in perfect symbiosis um, film form, film narrative and subtext. It's a film that is an existentialist comedy about creativity and it's incredibly existentialist, it's incredibly comedic and it's incredibly creative and all of its parts really feed on to each other. Um, it's a film that you can watch on a loop because it sort of has so much to say about itself, about the idea of what creatives get up to and the idea of filmmaking and what it means to be somebody who is making a piece of art or uh, something that is creative in the 20th century. And really, the combination between these three parts, they are so interlaced and so essential to each other that you cannot just talk about what the plot of Eight and a Half is about, or you cannot talk about how great it looks in black and white. Um, you have to talk about it all together. So it's really that combination that, for me, is, makes it absolute perfection. Number two is the absolute uh, amazing originality of its images. There are scenes in this film that you will absolutely recognized from other films that you've seen before. Um, I had this incredible experience as a major, major film fan of watching Casablanca for the first time, age 35, which is a little bit embarrassing <laughs> to admit. But at the same time, while I was watching it, I was thinking, oh, that's where that joke came from. Oh, that's where that reference came from. And film fans will have a very similar experience with Eight and a Half because you will see images that have been, become such a staple of filmmaking or such a staple of filmmaking language. Um, if you think about the opening scene of Eight and a Half, which is about, uh, it's a dream sequence, but you don't know that until a couple of minutes into the film. It's about someone, someone who's stuck in a traffic jam 
and the situation becomes increasingly more and more anxious. He starts to, you know, see people talk to him, and he he can't hear the voices, and he's stuck in the car, and he's suddenly breathing this air. You don't quite understand what's going on, and suddenly he breaks free from the car. That's a scene that was even quoted in La La Land this year, <laughs> in a completely different context. But it sort of tells you what, how original these images are, and how inventive, and how easily it is to take them up and repurpose them for another film or another, another idea. Um, three, it's a film in black and white. I have a real soft spot for monochrome <laughs> <laughs> photography, but um, the black and white in this film is absolutely incredible. And it really feeds into this idea of how, um, how, how the parts of the film fit together, the form, the narrative and the subtext. And the use of black and white is essential to it to create this kind of place where dreams and fantasies fit into reality as well. It's very difficult to tell in any Fellini film whether you're watching a dream sequence or if you're watching somebody's fantasy at that moment or if it's actually reality. Sometimes reality is more grotesque than dreams in his films and uh, the black and white is really essential to that. Um, it's, it's, a, it's so much part of the language of this film and it's, it's stunning. Um, for Reason number four is the absolute coolness of this time period. Uh, the clothes look fantastic. The glasses look incredible. I mean, you, you, you have to get to Mad Men to see a better use of glasses in film or TV photography. Um, everything that these characters get up to is, is incredibly um, trendy and totally hip. And what Fellini is doing here is representing a sort of um, a very interesting place for Italy. This is Italy just after the, what's called the Italian miracle of the 1950s. So after the war, Italy gets this massive influx of industrialization, modernization, cash. Suddenly people have cars, they have fridges, they have things that are modern, they have things that are cool. And people become uh, incredibly precious about what they wear and incredibly stylish. So everything that is about creating the world of this film is about really communicating the sense of an Italian society and really here we're talking about the upper levels of Italian society everybody in this film is involved in filmmaking or magic or circus or things that are pretty much what we would refer to as an upper class in Italy although the class system is a very very different concept in Italy but really a kind of jet set the kind of you know the trendy artistic people who can afford as the characters in this film do to go off to a spa location and live in a grand hotel for a, for a while and just kind of have their mistress come over and visit. Um, and so, you know, absolutely everything that these people are wearing and everything they're doing and the places they hang out and the things they drink and the things they smoke are the coolest of the cool. Um, number five, uh, the humour in the film is completely uh, modern very arresting and uh, I have to uh, mention a particular scene at this point where a film critic who has been incredibly annoying throughout the film and yet somehow is the moral core of the film and really takes the filmmaker to town um, gets disposed of in a rather <laughs> dramatic way in the middle of a cinema. Um, hang the DJ <laughs> said the Smiths hang the film critic, says Fellini. Um, so there, there is a certain kind of humour. There's also another kind of humour, which is very much about um, the sort of bodily consciousness of all these characters and how they uh, inhabit certain places. And it really fits into the coolness. You know, to, you know, to be cool, you have to have no sense of humour about yourself at all. And yet most people here do. 
Um, reason number six is something that cannot be taken out of this film. Um, if you ask anybody what do they remember about Eight and a Half, they will probably remember that piece of music at the end. Uh, it's, it's an absolutely great little uh, fanfare um, of trumpets and joyous uh, music composed by Nino Rota, one of the greatest film composers of all time. Uh, but on top of that, there are some absolutely incredible sequences that use what you, know, you, could, you could sell as, now this is what I call classical music for film, <laughs> uh, greatest hits. Uh, and they are employed to great effect. So there's some pieces from Tchaikovsky, which are used again for very, very comedic uh, purposes. There is this absolutely brilliant scene in which all these people descend onto the spa town to drink their uh, spa waters to the tune of the ride of the Valkyries. Uh, and there's, there's great humor in the use of music, but there's also um, a lot of very transcendental moments that have to do with the music, particularly the Rota score. Reason number seven, let's face it, this film is incredibly sexy. Uh, it just oozes sex everywhere you look. Mastroianni is, like I said, absolutely irresistible in it. He's so charming. And he's surrounded by all these women that he's loved or he's trying to love or he's sort of not really loving but just interested in, in, in some other ways. Um, and uh, there's, there's a great big discourse around this kind of rampant male uh, sexuality and uh, the idea of how men consume women one after the other and yet all the women in this film are incredibly charismatic, very memorable, really attractive. Uh, everybody looks great uh, and just there is this great big celebration of sex and desire and eroticism uh, which is in great um, in great contrast with the, with the society that this film came from, which was still very Catholic, still very moralistic, and really Fellini tries to move away from uh, from this notion that you know desire must be repressed. So the sex of it uh, is is fundamental. Um, Eight and a Half was considered a very obscene and outrageous film. My grandmother was apparently so shocked by it that she left the cinema. There is, there is in fact, no sex scenes in it at <laughs> all. There's just people who are incredibly happy to have sex and have lovers and totally unashamed about it. There are, um, in, in great Italian tradition, elderly men who have much younger girlfriends. Let's not go into that territory. Um, but the, mas the idea of masculinity like that is also sent up really big time. Uh, a lot of these men have very, very hollow lives. And so while there's this great pleasure uh, in, in the flesh and the body, uh, also in terms of eating, there's, mm. there's just a great relationship to pleasure in general in Fellini's films. Um, there's, a, there's a sort of core of it which says, perhaps this is not all you mm. want from life. Uh, so very, uh, very interesting. Uh, reason number eight is perhaps quite personal, but to me, the Italianness of it all is fascinating. Um, I think the film has this really uh, interesting and complex relationship with its Catholicism, uh, which is something that all Italians have to deal with at some point, uh, and particularly also with moralism. Like I was saying, there's there are all these characters who are married or in various relationships at different stages of seriousness, and yet they all um, sort of depart from them in various different ways. The oppressive nature of family is also something that Italians will certainly recognize in this film and is very much the, the topic of at least two of the major dream sequences in the film. Um, so that, that kind of um, idea that um, 
there, Fellini is really trying to, to think about how society is going to move on in mm. certain ways, having come from a time of uh, great social disruption before the war, during the war, and in the immediate aftermath of the war. Um, really, this is a time of great renaissance for Italy again, and so cinema and the arts really flourished at this time in Italy, which is the early 1960s, so Eight and a Half is released in 1962. And uh, Fellini is trying to investigate what does it mean to be Italian at this point. And then finally, the half is, I would posit that Eight and a Half has the best closing sequence of any film ever made, possibly until There Will Be Blood. I know that we can have this conversation. Yes. Um, but um, it really is a, a fantastic uh, sort of sublimation of everything that's gone on in the film. It's an incredible, impeccable uh, dream logic, all fitting together at the end. Uh, and really by the end you're left thinking are we awake or are we dreaming do we actually see this film do we not see it and the truth is that you are in the cinema you are watching a film and that's exactly the state in which Fellini wants you to be and so this great final scene is it real does it matter is really the question we've been entertained we've loved something we've been really angry at a character we've felt for him we've fallen in love with him we've desired him uh, we've desired the life that he has maybe we've been appalled by that life but all of these emotions are exactly the reason why cinema exists and so i think that that, that scene really kind of replicates it all and sends it off with a great big fanfare so i would say that this film is going to leave you loving life uh, it's uh, it's going to make you question certain things that you do with your body or with your mind at times because it's very much a film about the anxiety of creation and also wanting to be in control of things and how much you will never be because life isn't like that. Uh, and in the end, it all comes together. So what's better than that? Brilliant. Wow. Uh, as someone who sadly never got to experience your lecturers <laughs> with your time as your time as a teacher, I feel like I've, I've gained a lot of anything your students would have ever received there in the most intense <laughs> 18 you. minutes. I do waffle on, don't yeah. I? <laughs> Brilliant. Irena, thank you so much for thank talking you. about Eight and a Half. And we're back. Uh, Daniela and I were in the room for... You're in the room where it happened? We were. It's, it's a remarkable piece of... I don't know. It felt like poetry yeah. watching that as well. She definitely convinced me yeah. to watch the film. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, so if I don't know how, if you if you did listen to all of that, which why wouldn't you? If you have heard that all, you've got to go and watch it now. Why wouldn't you? Yeah. <laughs> Amazing. <laughs> all right. Uh, so do do go and check out Eight and a Half and Ginger and Rosa, of course. Uh, I'll remind you again. That's the twenty seventh at Curzon Aldgate. Uh, actually, if you uh, if you are a fan of other film podcasts did you know that there were other ones no no nah. nah. uh the cinema what's, what's a podcast <laughs> the ci- i thought we just did this because we liked each other yeah. <laughs> other people listen to this i know it's it's hard to believe oh, I, why would they i i need to rethink how i do this whole thing <laughs> Uh, if you are a fan of other film podcasts, then the uh, the great cinematologist will actually be at Aldgate on the 27th too, uh, presenting The Other Side of Hope, the new Aki Korosmaki film. Um, so if you want to double up on your events at Aldgate, the 27th is the day for you. Also, the Aldgate Cinema, if you don't know, it hasn't been open that long. No. And it is lovely. It's a really nice 
cinema. It's done really. It's done really well, and I'm not. I'm not just saying that. Mm. As in, go check it. Even if you just want to go and have a coffee. Go have a coffee. Yeah. Go yeah, yeah. go go there. I nearly fell asleep on the comfy sofa. So <laughs> yeah, go there. It's really nice. What were you watching? No, as in, as in after the film. After the film. <laughs> During the film, I didn't fall asleep. I just want to confirm, I didn't fall asleep. Although they do have footstools in the screen. Yeah, but what anyway, can you expect, eh? All right. Um, so we must finish with our cousin home cinema recommendations. Uh, and we've got a women filmmakers collection. And I believe that after the Aldgate event, uh, Ginger and Rosa may be appearing on there in some capacity, though we don't have a date just yet. Uh, but there are a number of other great films amongst that collection which we've picked some recommendations from uh yeah so uh i'd like to recommend citizen four um snowden is also on there um so they work really really nicely together as sort of companion pieces uh snowden gives you the whole picture of of, of edward snowden's sort of life but citizen four zooms in a lot more and is, and is just sort of is is so tense that's directed by laura poitras uh really worth checking out um, yeah, as I said, it's it's so tense. So just watch it for that alone. Um, I'm going to recommend Mustang, uh, directed by Denise Gamze Erguven. Um, she's a Turkish-French filmmaker. Um, really beautiful film. It's about five sisters in a Turkish village and um, them trying to figure... It's a coming-of-age as well story. And it's again about the friendship between the five of them. Um, it's quite similar to Ginger and Rose in that res- respect um, and how they're dealing with their family and how they're trying to um, take their lives in their own hands. It's really beautiful, definitely worth watching. Great. Uh, there's so much other stuff on there. Quickly, I will recommend uh, Orion, The Man Who Would Be King, uh, directed by Jeannie Finley. Uh, this is a film about a Elvis impersonator uh, who went through... It's a documentary. Uh, it's about a chap who after Elvis died although he was kind of three inches taller and different colour eyes he put on a mask and everyone thought oh Elvis is back Um, (laughs) and it's actually it's really beautifully shot and it's very sad uh, about how the kind of early music industry worked for rock and roll and just how people got pushed in and pulled out and torn apart by it uh, it's a really beautiful film uh, so I'd recommend that but there's so much other stuff on there in this Women Filmmakers Collection uh, you've got Hope Dixon Leach's new film The Leveling which is in cinemas at the moment yep. and you can check that out on Home Cinema 2 got Heal the Living which we covered a couple of weeks ago oh, do check that out I know we said that I said yeah. that when we did the podcast but do check out Heal the Living yeah uh, The Love Witch as well uh, we've got the Falling, which I've got to give a shout out to, because mm. Florence Pugh is currently starring in Lady Macbeth, which is a stunning film. And The Falling is directed by Carol Morley, who's just announced that she'll be going over to America to make her next film. And so that's really exciting, particularly because we got we had Andrea Arnold last year going and viewing America through that distinctly British lens. It will be really exciting to see that. Orlando, Sally Potter's film. There's so much there, so do go and check it out. Um, But I think that's all we've got time for. So, uh, thank you to CSO for letting us use their studio as usual. Until next time, it's goodbye from Daniela. Goodbye. It's goodbye from Harry. Goodbye. And it's goodbye from me. Goodbye. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quinn's. 
Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.